This is Unicorn Builders, where we tell the untold stories of the founders who've defied the odds and built billion-dollar companies. Here's your host, Brett Stapper, CEO of Frontlines.io. Now, let's jump straight into today's episode. Hey, founders, and thanks for listening. Today, our unicorn builder is Jack Newton, CEO and co-founder of Clio, a legal tech company that's raised $386 million in funding. Jack, thanks for chatting with me today. Thanks for having me, Brett. Not a problem. Super excited for this conversation. And I'd love to begin with just finding a bit more about the backstory behind the company. So I saw online that the company was founded in 2008. Take us back to 2008. What was going on inside your world and what led to the founding of the company? Yeah, so 2008, 15 years ago. So just to set the stage, you know, we got the founding idea for Clio in 2007, launched the product in 2008. So 2007, just to set the stage, it was the year... Steve Jobs unveiled the first iPhone. The cloud was nascent. Salesforce.com was starting to get a real head of steam going around it. We saw early players like 37 Signals and Basecamp starting to see some success in the marketplace with these new web applications, as we called them in those days. And my background's in computer science. I've got a master's degree in machine learning. So I come to problems from a technologist perspective And what was really clear to me in 2007 was the cloud was going to change everything. I think that's obviously true today. It was a bit less obvious in 2007. And again, we saw Salesforce.com and a few others with early success in that space. And I asked the question, what industry is ripe for disruption? What industry is going to benefit from the cloud if I was to bring a cloud-based solution to that market? And I phoned up my longtime best friend, Ryan Govro. I've been friends with him since we were eight years old in grade three when we met in Edmonton, Alberta. And at the time I was living in in Edmonton still, Ryan was living in, in Vancouver where I am now today. And he was working as the IT manager at Gowlings, which is one of Canada's largest law firms with about a thousand lawyers in the firm. And we chatted and I talked through this, this thesis I had around the cloud. And Ryan said, you know, basically I, I work with lawyers and the technology they use every day. And I'll tell you this technology sucks. <laughs> and I think there's opportunity to do it better. So we rolled up our sleeves, started doing some due diligence on the market and came away with a few key realizations. One is there's a vast unvended market in legal that is is not using any kind of legal practice management solution to run their law firm. And we thought that was pretty broken to be like talking to an accountant that was using a a paper ledger to run their accounting firm rather than accounting software. And we saw a huge opportunity there. We also realized that the vast majority of the legal market is made up of solos and small firms. So again, we came to the industry as outsiders. And even though if you watch network TV or read John Grisham novels, you might think that lawyers all practice in big, fancy thousand person, 500 plus person law firms with really fancy lobbies and AAA office space downtown, the reality is that 80% of all lawyers practice as in firms of 10 lawyers or less, and 50% of all lawyers practice as solos. So it's a very SMB marketplace. It's a very SMB profession. And that even further reinforced our idea that the cloud might be a great fit for this market because a lot of the market doesn't have 
a floor of IT people. It doesn't have even a dedicated IT person. So the cloud would be an amazing distribution model to tap into this segment of the market. So that was the idea. And the product we built was really simple in the value proposition it had, which is basically, if you're a lawyer, Clio will help you run every aspect of your practice from a business perspective. It will help you keep track of your clients, of the matters you're working on for those clients. It'll help keep track of your bills. It'll collect payment for you on those bills. It'll help you keep track of your time that are going into those cases. It'll keep track of all the documents you're working on and essentially help lawyers stay on top of the business aspect of running a law firm. And that was the product we launched in 2008. We were the very first cloud-based practice management system in the world when we launched in 2008. And now over the last 15 years, we've grown to a company that's over a thousand employees today, used by over 150,000 legal professionals around the world. And by a very large margin, are the largest provider of legal practice management software in the world. Something you mentioned there, and I want to dive a bit deeper, is on Salesforce and their whole story. So when Salesforce was going to market, they were going to war with software. And they had to really evangelize that idea of the cloud. I think it was Siebel Systems who owned the CRM market at the time. They basically went to war with them and there was a lot of opposition against the cloud. Did you have something similar? I would imagine that because they're law firms, there would be privacy concerns with the cloud and and things like that. Was it something similar there? It was not only similar, but that problem raised to an exponent in the sense that we very clearly and very early identified that lawyers' comfort level with the cloud and their willingness to trust a third party with their data and to trust that third party to host and deliver that data securely in the cloud was going to be the single biggest risk we faced as a business. If, if we were going to succeed, we needed to, to blaze a trail that proved that the cloud was a secure and safe place to store your data not only to lawyers and legal professionals, but also to bar associations, law societies, and the regulators of lawyers who had a very strong predisposition to on-premise systems only because they were a known quantity and kind of the status quo. So the cloud, this new thing, presented a lot of unknowns. And we saw a lot of fear, uncertainty, and doubt or FUD being seeded by our on-prem competitors at the time around the cloud as well. So it was, it was a big hurdle, a big barrier for us to overcome in the early days of Clio. And we tackled that by very deliberately putting out thought leadership, writing white papers, writing blog posts, and getting on the speaking circuit at any conference that would have us on the security and ethics of cloud computing for lawyers. And we took a very diligent approach to it where we advocated a position that the cloud is not only just as secure as your on-premise systems, but for most lawyers, more secure than their on-premise systems. Again, you know, remembering the fact that in 2008, a lot of lawyers' on-prem systems looked like an unpatched Windows server connected directly to the internet in their broom closet. So there wasn't a lot of security, either physical or electronic security to those servers in the data at that time. And our view was we can, especially for these solos and small firms that can't invest in security, we can bring economies of scale to bear on this problem. We can help thousands of solos and small firms 
collectively invest millions of dollars into security and develop a system that is world leading in its security and overall capabilities. And that was really the first two or three years of our existence at Clio, Brett, which was both building a product, but fighting the fight to advocate for cloud computing in legal. Do those on-prem competitors still exist today as they were? Did they have to transition to the cloud or did they go extinct? Amazingly, if you asked me that question 10 years ago, I, I would have said none of them will be around in five years, but they're all around. And I, I think it speaks to, you know, maybe the durability of the legal consumer and the high lifetime value that those customers have as well. The, these customers, even though there's many solutions out there, it's superior. Many of these legacy on-prem firms are still around. They're dwindling in their numbers. Many of them have been bought by private equity Many of them have had, you know, the traditional private equity playbook executed on them where they've ramped prices, decreased or eliminated investment in the product, charging more for support, charging more for updates and so on. So they don't necessarily have happy customers, but they still have customers today. And that switching from on-prem to cloud is something that we've seen. There's been a very long tail and I think we're still in legal in the early days of that transition, you know, in the technology diffusion curve kind of framing, I would say we've maybe just got the early majority of the market starting to come on board to the cloud now and still lots of switching to be done from the legacy on-prem folks. You mentioned their thought leadership. And as I was preparing for this interview, I saw that you've obviously been on a bunch of podcasts. You've done a lot of talks, but you also were the host of your own podcast. You've written a book. Talk to us about what role thought leadership played in your go-to-market in the early days and what role thought leadership continues to play? Yeah, the thought leadership strategy was really kind of existential in the beginning, which is these on-prem vendors are seeding, again, this fear, uncertainty, and doubt about the cloud. And somebody needs to come out and bang the drum in favor of the cloud. And we need to counter this narrative and get really proactive about it. I really believed we could either let ourselves get dragged around by this narrative and by this FUD, or we could turn the tables and really turn the conversation around into how it's actually on-prem that has a bunch of risks associated with it. If you look at the hacks and the data breaches that were happening back then, and especially that are happening, even still happening today, it tends to be of on-prem systems. It's USB keys, hard drive servers, laptops getting stolen and cloud systems are, there's no such thing as absolute security, of course, but they've proven to be much more secure than these on-premise systems. And the thought leadership approach was really about getting that strong opinion out and supporting it with data. And what I found is when there's something new happening and something exciting happening, it's a great opportunity for founders and CEOs more broadly to engage in the narrative, engage in the discussion. And what you end up getting for free in that is a lot of coverage about your company. But the security and ethics of cloud computing is a great object lesson in that opportunity in the sense that I ended up getting articles written about me and the company and this thought leadership and this position around the cloud and the role of the cloud in legal in all sorts of magazines, whether it's the ABA Journal or other legal-specific publications, even some mainstream publications. And reporters wanted to have that conversation because that was something that was germane to them and something their readers wanted to read about. And then the silver lining on this is 
I'm introduced as Jack Newton, the CEO of one of the leading legal practice management platforms. Clio gets mentioned directly. I get mentioned directly. And there's a lot of awareness being built up about Clio with no paid advertising, no paid spend. And it was a really valuable lesson for me in the early days of building Clio, just how valuable that can be. And again, no reporter wants to pick up the phone if the pitch is, I want to talk to you about Clio and this cool product I built. No matter how much in love I might be with a product, it's just not an exciting story. But if I phone up a reporter and say, hey, there's a really important transition from on-prem to the cloud happening, let's talk about that. They want to talk about that all day long and their readers want to read about that all day long. And fast forward to 15 years later, and it's a flavor of the same story where I'm now talking about AI and legal and the role of AI and the ethics of AI for lawyers in the year 2023 and 2024. This is the same kind of strategy and the same opportunity for thought leadership, the same appetite for discussion around this and just a, a fantastic opportunity to build the company's brand alongside this thought leadership. So it's the reason I wrote my book, The Client-Centered Law Firm, where, again, a really strong opinion I formed over the first 10 years of building Clio was lawyers can be great lawyers and they're often amazing at understanding the ins and outs of a legal issue. But man, do they ever need a lot of help in running the business side of their law firm? And do they ever need a lot of help thinking about how to design legal services in a way that consumers want to consume them and they need to move away from a lawyer-centric mindset to a client-centered mindset? And that was really the heart of the idea of my, my book, which again has generated a lot of interest and a lot of opportunity for me to not just talk about the book, but the technology in Clio that helps support more client-centered legal services. So thought leadership is enormously powerful. I kind of hate the word, to be honest. Uh, you know, I always wince anyone says, you know, Jack's a thought leader or I'm writing thought leadership, but it maybe it's a necessary evil. It captures the idea. But I think this idea of forming a strong opinion and articulating that opinion to the world and letting that be a way of creating a, a unique halo around yourself and your brand is a really powerful thing. What's happening behind the scenes when you develop those narratives? Are you brainstorming with your team now and kind of working through like what the point of view on the market should be? Is that something that you do like isolated on your own and you come out and just share it with the world? What's happening behind the scenes of the thought leadership strategy and thought leadership program? Yeah, I mean, in the early days of Clio, like the security and ethics of the cloud thought leadership era, the start and end of Clio's thought leadership and marketing team was me, right? So I conceived of, wrote, executed on on every aspect of that. You know, now I've got the great benefit of a, you know, almost 100 person marketing team helping support, you know, me and the broader company and everything from brand to thought leadership and and others. So I've got a team that will interview me and pull very rough ideas out of my head and help polish them up and, and, and help produce content and bring it back to me for editing and comments on items like my CleoCon keynote, for example, which I just delivered in October of, of this year, announcing our new AI products and announcing our broader AI strategy. Got a ton of support from, from that and the broader team in you know being thought partners riffing on ideas developing ideas developing slides going after doing research and helping support that narrative one of our more powerful pieces of thought leadership and content at clio today is something called the legal trends report which if you google legal trends report clio 
online, you'll get this report. We've published this report seven times now. We're on our, our seventh edition. And it's a really comprehensive piece of research where we do both direct primary research on our own anonymized and aggregated data in Clio, as well as a fairly large scale consumer survey. And that's again, a, the joint effort of about 10 people. So the team is definitely a huge support today to the pieces of thought leadership that we're both directly and indirectly producing at Clio. You mentioned a, a hundred person marketing team there. What did you learn throughout this journey and throughout this process of building a marketing team of that size? Yeah, it's a great question. I mentioned earlier that we are primarily focused on the small to medium sized firms. So we, we really focus on, I would say our sweet spot is between one and a hundred employee law firms. We stretch up from a hundred to a thousand employees, depending on the type of firm and their specific needs. But the nature of being focused on a smaller end of the spectrum of if law firms is the, the corollary is that we need a pretty efficient go-to-market motion. We don't have a field sales team. We, we don't have a large number of outbound reps. We really depend on inbound demand generation and inbound marketing to drive the demand for the company. And that means investing a lot in brand, investing a lot in our content and our SEO and our SEM. So my lessons in, in building a marketing team from the leadership level on down is it's hard. Getting great marketing people is very hard. I think it's a very challenging role at the leadership level in the sense that you need somebody that is great at brand and great at positioning but also great at what is kind of an entirely orthogonal skill set around performance marketing and demand generation and attribution. I think any great marketer is, is heavily data-driven and quantitative in the way they approach things, but also great at the more qualitative things like developing a, a brand that connects with your end consumer and so on. So it's a very diverse, complicated function in the company that is so important to get right. Because if you're off in any regard on that positioning, if you're off in terms of where you're deploying your ad spend, you're talking about at Clio scale, you know, missing out on or lighting on fire millions of dollars of, of investment. So it's so both hard and crucial to, to get right. When it comes to the customers that you're selling to, do most of them already have the line item of a legal practice management software, or do you have to convince them to create that line item in the first place? That's a great question. And I would say it's a mix of both. There's some customers we're talking to that, that reach out to us or that we meet at a trade show or whatever the case might be that already has a solution. They've already got an on-prem solution, or maybe they're using another cloud-based competitive solution. They already see the value of being in the cloud. They already see the value of legal practice management software. And, and to your question, they're already spending the money and they, they just want to switch to a better solution. So that's something we, we see a lot of success with and is a pretty straightforward sale. An interesting stat is that only about a third of lawyers use legal practice management software. So this unvented segment of the market is two thirds of the market. And some of that two thirds understands that they should be using a, an LPM and has, you know, maybe at least provisional budget allocated in their mind for that down the road. 
But there's also a good chunk, a surprisingly big chunk of that two thirds of the unvetted market that doesn't even understand that there's a solution like Clio out there. And it's amazing, you know, sometimes, again, whether it's a trade show, maybe it's an outbound phone call, we're talking to a lawyer that's describing the pain points they have. And our salesperson is working through the pain points with them where they're outlining the fact they can't stay on top of their billings. They can't keep track of their time. They're not collecting payments in a timely fashion from their clients. They lose track of their to-dos and get behind on a matter or maybe miss a key limitation date. And we tell them in this phone call or at that trade show, you know, did you know there's a category of software called legal practice management that solves this problem for you? And the answer is no. And well, did you know there's a specific solution called Clio that solves this problem for you? And the answer is also no. So the awareness, not just of Clio, but of the entire category of software that can help these lawyers is not well known to a decent chunk of the market. And as surprising as that is, I think it's because a lot of lawyers go through law school and only learn about the letter of the law. They learn about the ins and outs of a tort case. They, they learn about every aspect of, of making a legal argument, but they don't learn anything about how to run a law firm and the tools you would use to run a law firm. And that is the ultimate opportunity for us at Clio is really to educate the market on the fact there's an incredible set of tools in the form of legal practice management software an incredible tool called Clio that can help you run every aspect of your business. And to a lot of lawyers, this feels like an epiphany. When they see what Clio can do for them, it really changes their lives in terms of making it better and helping them keep on top of their practice. This show is brought to you by Frontlines Media, a podcast production studio that helps B2B founders launch, manage, and grow their own podcast. Now, if you're a founder, you may be thinking, I don't have time to host a podcast. I've got a company to build. Well, that's exactly what we built our service to do. You show up and host, and we handle literally everything else. To set up a call to discuss launching your own podcast, visit frontlines.io slash podcast. Now, back to today's episode. On the topic of category, a lot of the founders I speak to, they have this burning desire to go out there and create a category. And from my conversations, what I've learned is a lot of the times you're really better off just going after an existing category and reinventing it, disrupting it, and then owning that category. It sounds like that's what you've done here with legal practice management, where you've just really redefined it around the cloud and and pushed your POV into the market and, and you're dominating that category now. Have you ever been tempted to say, we're going to call it something completely different? We're going to go out there and create our own category? I have, and I think it's an excellent question and point that you raise. And I think at the end of the day, you know, creating a category, you need to look at that as that's the same kind of swing as saying, I'm going to create a consumer brand, you know, where there's a lot of companies that have tried and failed to do that. And it's a lot easier to fit into an existing category, even if it's an evolved form of that category and at least start there and eventually evolve into something that might be described as a new category. And I think there's, you know, HubSpot's a good example. I think they did a great job of creating the category of inbound marketing software. And this is, again, back in the early to mid aughts, but they did a good job of positioning themselves against Salesforce as really the inbound marketing tool and define that category really effectively but it took a huge amount of work and a, a very high level of execution for them to do that. With Clio, we took the tack of saying, hey, this is legal practice management software. This is the 
same core functionality that you're getting from your on-premise software. So we didn't need to convince them that there's some new category of software they need. But if you look at what we've done over the last 15 years, we've really taken our foothold in that LPM perspective, that, that LPM positioning, and evolved it into a direction where we're really clearly more of a client experience platform today in the sense that Clio, yes, it runs your practice and it helps you be efficient. But one of our main value propositions today is that because we're in the cloud, we can help you deliver a much better client experience. We've got iPhone and Android apps that your clients can install and use to work directly with you in a really effortless way. And you've got a client portal and we've got electronic payments and we've got text messaging and all these things that make working with your clients amazingly effective and, and really frictionless. But that's a category that didn't exist 15 years ago that we've been able to, again, build our off of that, that foothold we got in LPM into a much broader solution and much broader story and much broader category of value that we can describe to our customers. So if it's possible, I would advocate trying to navigate that type of path. I think any founder listening in to this interview would think, wow, it almost sounds like it's been easy for Clio and, and easy for Jack, but I'm sure that's not <laughs> been the reality and that's certainly not the case can you tell us any stories or share any stories that maybe highlight some of the, the pain and, and challenges and maybe some of the low lights that you've experienced so far in building the company? Because I'm sure maybe one or two exist. Oh, yeah. I mean, we could have a, a whole series on my failures at Clio at some point, Brett. I think it's one of the things, it's a great question because you can listen to these podcasts and think that it sounds like nothing but net for these founders when you're, you know, kind of like an overnight 15-year success story. But you know, again, you know, just a few of the dark periods to show some scar tissue. You know, number one, we raised our first round of financing in 2008. And I know some of your listeners are probably too young to remember the uh, economic landscape in, in 08. But, you know, it makes what we're going through today look like a cakewalk in terms of what the fundraising environment looked like. People were legitimately worried the financial system as we knew it was going to collapse and investors just stopped writing checks. And we had a pitch and traction and a story that was really attractive. And yeah, I remember one of the tougher decisions I had to make was turning down a term sheet where, you know, the investor had floated a valuation with us. We had a handshake on a valuation and he, the next day gave us a term sheet that was a quarter of the valuation he'd offered the day before and with a ton of structure and governance on top of it as well. And we needed this money. This was like, we need to make payroll with this money kind of term sheet. And he just said, hey, look, the market changed and here's the new deal. And I think he thought he could bend us over the barrel. And it was a very, very tough decision. But me and Ryan said, we're walking from this term sheet. And it was the best decision we ever made. And that was a, a really bleak moment, though, because it meant, you know, we were effectively out of money. I had to go take out a second mortgage on my house, max out credit cards, and really put everything on the line to get the company through that period. And we ended up getting an amazing investor, Christoph Jans, on board, you know, just three or four months after that term sheet lit on fire. So I, I think there's always, not always, but often light at the end of the tunnels where you get through those tough times and, and make some tough decisions and new opportunities often crop up. You know, another tough time I remember was, you know, inside of a week, I had a brand new 
chief revenue officer that I'd recruited and was super happy with. He was just a few months on the job, had a bunch of personal stuff crop up. He had to resign out of the blue. And my longtime COO that was almost a co-founder ended up resigning effectively that same week and had a number of really big personal developments happen around the same time, some negative personal developments. That same week, a CFO that I had just signed to join the company, and this was in 2021 when, you know, hiring a CFO was probably the single hardest thing any SaaS company could do. He'd signed to join and at the last minute rescinded his signed offer letter and said he'd gotten a better offer that he was taking instead. That was a week where you just feel like body blow after body blow. And you just kind of feel like thrown in the towel after a week like that. And, you know, one of my mentors, when I, you know, called him kind of looking for a bit of a a lifeline that week, you know, he said, look, Jack, this is a super tough, I'm not going to sugarcoat it. Like that's a tough series of developments, but you just got to keep swimming, like just keep going and, and it'll get better. And, you know, sure enough, six months later, I was looking back with a new CRO in the seat and actually a phenomenal new COO recruited. I ended up coming out of that experience, you know, feeling like the company is so much stronger and better off for those changes, but those were probably changes that were necessary, but wouldn't have happened without some external prompting. So keep swimming (laughs) is my second piece of advice. And, and there's definitely been, you know, a number of dark days like that week in, in 2021 that uh, can feel really tough to get through. Yeah, I can imagine that all founders who've built major companies like yours have had to deal with something similar as well. So appreciate you sharing those lessons. When it comes to fundraising, as I mentioned there, you've raised almost 400 million to date. What would you say is the top one, maybe two lessons that you've learned about fundraising throughout this journey? So lesson number one would be the first million is the hardest. That's the hardest money to raise. You've got the least amount of proof You've got the least amount of product traction. You've got the least amount of social proof. You've got the smallest team. And those are the investors taking the largest bet on you as a founder and, and on the company. So the first million is the hardest for sure. You know, I found that, you know, again, we were raising that in 2008. So I'll put that first million in context in the sense that it was hard for probably for a bunch of reasons, both intrinsic to your first round of financing and a lot of externalities with the global financial crisis playing out at the same time. My second lesson would be investors want to invest in something that is working. They want to invest in something where you can show them, hey, here's five experiments we're running, for example, on paid ad spend that we're deploying on our Google paid spend. And we think we could quadruple this if we had the resources but we're, we're right now constrained by cash flow. We've got good product market fit. We've got good traction, good conversion rates. We just need to pour more gas on the fire. And at the end of the day, even if they say they want to invest in, you know, riskier stuff like real pure product development, at the end of the day, you know, most investors want to put more fire on something that's working. And to the extent you can show, I've got a really solid foundation that's working well here and a bunch of investments that I can scale with more resources with a relatively low risk around whether they'll scale or not, that is a very powerful story that investors will chase after every day. And the third lesson about investors is if you need the money, it's harder to raise the money. 
And if they sense that, they'll take advantage of that. So my most successful rounds of financing have been, you know, when we've got a lot of optionality, we've got cash in the bank, we've got products that are working, we've got growing revenue, we're not burning a ton of cash, and we don't need investment in an existential way. We need that investment in an opportunistic way. That gives you a ton of leverage. And so that's my, you know, my third lesson, although it's not universal and you can't necessarily control those parameters, if you can make sure that even if you're timing your funding round in a way that you've still got a good amount of runway left, don't let yourself get into a position where investors get leverage over you because it can get really dangerous. I'm sure at some point in your life, you've seen the the movie, The Social Network. And there's that one scene where Justin Timberlake says like, you know, a million dollars isn't cool. A billion dollars <laughs> is cool. Something along those lines. Yes. And talking with you, Great that's, scene. Kind of how, that's kind of how I feel about unicorn and unicorn builders and even calling you a unicorn. I think a unicorn isn't cool. You know what is cool? A centaur. So tell a us, centaur. What's, it like? that's right. what's it like to be a centaur? Yeah. So maybe for any of your listeners that aren't familiar with the term, this is a term that the folks over at Bessemer Venture Partners cooked up. And I think it's in response to this flood of unicorns that entered the market in 2021, 2022. And in some cases, we're, we're really in edge cases, like almost pre-revenue companies or very early stage revenue companies that were getting such crazy multiples that they qualified as a, a unicorn. And the comment was, you know, this unicorn, this idea of a mythical rare creature has actually been normalized. Like we're seeing unicorns produced on a daily basis. And what Bessemer honed in on is what is actually the true rare quality of an exceptional scaled company? And they honed in on this concept of revenue and revenue of $100 million of ARR or more as being really a, a pretty effective filter to talk about who are the call it the real unicorns, you know, the companies that are of significant revenue scale that are both 100 million plus ARR and unicorns, you know, this concept of a centaur is what they introduced. And that really resonated with me. And the data framework they used to say, hey, there's, there's over at the time they introduced this concept a couple of years ago, there was like 1200 unicorns, but only 120 centaurs. And their comment at the time was there's going to be a unicorn call at some point where, you know, these valuations come to earth and it's the centaurs that are going to have real enduring value. And I think their commentary actually ended up being quite prescient in the sense that, you know, it wasn't long after they published that article that we, we saw multiples and go down, interest rates go up and, and we entered this, you know, much more, well, we saw the multiple compression that we're all trying to navigate today. Something else I saw that really caught my attention in your press interviews, and I know you also have it on your LinkedIn page, is this idea of building a 100-year company. Did you start off from day one saying this is going to be a 100-year company? Because most founders, I think, don't think in these long-term cycles. They think, you know, five years, maybe 10 years, but 100 years, that's a long time. So talk to us about that. Yeah, this has definitely been an evolution for us over time. And, you know, I would say our ambitions and the timescale we've been thinking of our ambitions over have really increased over the years. In 2008, when I founded Clio with Ryan, we had number one, very humble ambitions, which was, could we build a bootstrapped company kind of in the spirit of 37 signals that maybe threw off, you know, a hundred grand a year for each of us that we could live off. Maybe we hire two or three employees to help run the thing, you know, with us. And this would 
essentially be a nice lifestyle business. That was the early ambition. And in the very early days, our time horizon was, you know, maybe can we make next month's payroll <laughs> was the time horizon we were thinking of. So we were very short term focused and very focused on just trying to get the product to a point where we felt like we were throwing it over the fence to a customer and asking them if we built something that has value for them. And so very humble initial ambitions. And, you know, we were very low on Maslow's hierarchy of needs in terms of trying to build and solve for kind of the basic food and shelter problems. I would say around three or four years in is when we had seen quite a bit of success. We had just raised our Series B financing round in 2012. We had, for the first time ever, more than a million dollars in the bank. And I felt like we were able to kind of pick our heads up a little bit and think bigger. We realized a few things. Number one, the market opportunity was enormous, almost limitless in terms of the breadth and depth of problems we felt could be solved and legal. We also felt like we were creating a real social good in the sense that if we helped lawyers be more efficient, more effective in the way they worked with clients, we could help improve access to justice. And in getting into the legal space and getting deep in the legal space, what I realized is that access to justice is, is a really crucial, what should be an essential human right. But there's data from the World Justice Project that tells us that 77% of legal issues do not get resolved with the help of a lawyer. So there's this massive access to justice gap that I felt technology could be a really powerful impact on. And we were starting to get it to a scale, even in 2012, where we realized we can actually have a material impact on this problem if we help bring lawyers along the journey of realizing how much more efficiently they could work and how much more effectively we could deliver justice to clients when we're helping lawyers leverage a technology platform like Clio. So we, we crafted a new mission statement, which at that point was to transform the practice of law for good with that deliberate double meaning of for good, meaning we wanted it to be permanent, kind of our dent in the universe, and we wanted to make it a positive change. And then just a few years ago, we actually evolved that to our current mission statement, which is to transform the legal experience for all. So we want to make legal more inclusive and we want to make it more client-centered. We want to make it more frictionless. And ultimately, we want to help lawyers be more successful and help clients see better outcomes. And in doing those two things, we think we can get a third massive win, which is to increase access to justice. And this mission is so vast and so expansive that I started realizing this would take decades to accomplish. And that's where I started talking about the idea of building a generational company. How are we building Clio in a way that we've got the infrastructure for not just the generation of people that is working at Clio today, but for the next generation and the next generation after that to continue our work to making the legal system better, to improving access to justice, and to continuing to develop leading edge technologies to drive that, that transformation. And I took inspiration to your question around who kind of inspired me in that way. I, I felt like one of the founders I've been inspired by over the years is Jeff Bezos, who has always, despite the fact that Amazon is a publicly traded company, which are typically notorious for being focused maybe at most a quarter out to think really in terms of how do we build for a decade timescale? How do we think very long term in the investments we're making? How do we embrace the idea that we can iterate quickly and learn quickly and, and so on? So 
a lot to like, you know, in terms of thinking longer term and really admire the way that Bezos and, and others do a good job of that. Have you watched that recent interview with Lex Friedman that Bezos did? No, I have not watched that yet. In fact, I wasn't even aware it was out there. I'll, I'll have to go watch it. I'm sure it's good. It's so good. I feel like it's a very, you don't see that a lot where it's, you know, like a, someone of his level of success who's sitting there in a totally open, long form interview like that, really just showing you kind of behind the scenes on how he thinks and how he approaches life. So it's a really good interview if you're a fan of Jeff Bezos, even if you're oh, not yeah, a fan, right. it's, it's a good interview. Yeah, no, I definitely will give it a listen. I, I love Lex Friedman's interviews as well. So uh, thanks for the the record. It'll get on my uh, weekend listening list. <laughs> no problem at all. And I know we are up on time or we're over on time. So we're going to have to wrap here. I'd love to have you on for a part two. I think there's still a lot that we could cover. And there's just a lot that founders can learn from you and your story and everything that you've built. Before we wrap up here, if there's any founders that are listening in that want to follow along with your journey as you continue to build for the next 85 years, where should they go? Well, I'm on Twitter, I, I guess X now, as long as that platform's still around, Jack underscore Newton. I'm on Instagram and threads at Newtonian. And anyone that would like to drop me an email, always happy to, to hear from other founders. I'm jack at clio.com. And yeah, I'd be happy to come on for part two at some point. Brett, really enjoyed our conversation today. Amazing. I love it. Jack, thanks so much for taking the time. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Keep in touch.